Thank you, Callie. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. We have been going through a study all year on uh, serving, and we looked at two aspects already, um, serving one another, did a study of the one another passages, then we've been going through what does it mean to serve the church, and uh, we've been using this book, and many of you have read it, and I encourage you to if you haven't, and uh, just of how we can serve in the church, and, and by doing that, we've been looking at various uh, ways, uh, traits, I should say, of what a outward-focused Christian should be doing and should look like. And you see them listed, if you can read them there, I will move from I am to I will, I will worship with others, I will grow with others, I will serve, I will go, I will give. Last week we looked at the concept, I will not be a church dropout. This morning I want to take some time and look at the uh, topic of I will avoid the trap of churchianity. Before we look into that, let's pray. God, we are thankful that we can be here this morning. And God, I am uh, asking that you will allow your Holy Spirit to guide and direct me. Lord, that your power will be evident, not because... I was here today, but because you were here today, Lord, we want to know your presence. We want to feel your power. Lord, I pray that you help us to know you better, to understand your heart and your mind better today. Lord, allow me to step aside and let you work. We ask this in your name. Amen. As we look at this uh, list that we gave, the last one we looked at says, I will avoid the trap of churchianity. Now, I know you're saying there is no such word as churchianity, but I like that word as well. It's in the book, and it, 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 gives, it conveys the idea of what we want to talk about this morning. Tom Rainer, the author, said this. He defines churchianity this way. It's practicing our church and religious beliefs according to human standards rather than biblical guidelines. There's a horrible trend today, I believe, among people, and I believe this has been a problem for maybe many decades of people who have been spending many decades going to church. They've been many decades, they've been church members, but yet they've slowly forgotten about Jesus. They've slowly forgotten about the gospel. And that is the idea, instead of being vibrant Christians, instead of being vibrant Christ followers, they've, been, they've slid into churchianity. And that's something far different than what, what God intended, and that's something far different than when Paul taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he said this, now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. We've looked at this verse uh, a couple times in the last few weeks, but he tells us in that passage that we are a part of a body, and, and he uses the idea of a body, and, and in that body we, have, we all have different parts, and, and we understand that some are ears, and some are eyes, and some are hands, and some are feet, and, but we all work together and we all are essential part of the whole and and he goes on he, he talks about that in an earlier verse he says this for just as the body is one and many members and all the members of the body though many are one body so it is with Christ and though there are many parts there are many individual members here we all function and when one member doesn't do their parts 
we're all affected. We're all hurt. And God's biblical and self-giving plan for His body is to function as a healthy unit. To function together to serve His glory and His purposes. But I believe churchianity separates the body from the head. The Bible tells us that we are the body of Christ and Christ is the head and yet I think it separates us in the same way that you go out into your garden and and you see a beautiful flower and you cut it off and, and you place it in a vase and it may display something. It may look good, but it yet is not part of the plant anymore. And God's desire for us is not to be cut flowers. God's desire is for us to be part of the whole. And so I really have a simple outline this morning. Two things. First of all, what are the symptoms of churchianity? These come from the book, and then I'll add to that. What's the solution? What are the symptoms? And he gives us four, five things. Excuse me. First of all, churchianity is, means that the church has become a spectator sport. As many of you know, I love sports. I have my whole life. I love basketball, football, baseball, soccer. I like to golf. I like to ski. I I just like sports. I always have. I've spent my life playing them. I love being on a team. I love uh, competing. I love preparing for the game. I love practicing. I love competition. However, there's a problem. I'm now 40 years old. I am past my prime. I am... Not so old that I can't participate, but I am not young enough to play with anyone like I used to be able to do. My body has been greatly affected by arthritis, so I've become more of a spectator than I have a participant. I love to watch sports now more than I used to. I love to sit in the stands and cheer. I love to watch in front of my television. I love to predict the plays that are about to take place. I love to second-guess coaches because I know better than they do, obviously. I I love to tell the refs when they're wrong. I love to tell the players when they're lazy. I've become a spectator. But I believe that churchianity is a lot like that. Members attend, but they don't actively participate anymore. Maybe at one point they did, but they don't anymore. They expect others to do the ministry, and for some some people, they've lost the passion completely about church, and it's become something where they just sit and attend, and they watch and they observe. And why do people choose to be spectators instead of committed Christians? I believe there's many reasons for that. I believe that for some it's because they enjoy having the appearance of church. They can walk into church on a Sunday morning and everyone looks and goes, there goes a good Christian, but they can live any way they want and they can live like the world any way they want the rest of the week. I believe some have become spectators because they've become unattached and they like to stay unattached because they don't like to be vulnerable. They don't like to be transparent with their church family. I believe some have become spectators because they want ownership over their own preferences instead of being a servant to others. And that is not what God intended. It shouldn't be the case where we have a body, but part of the body does not want to get involved. You know, that's kind of where I'm at now. Sometimes as as an individual, I go play sports, you know, I, I go play basketball, and it doesn't happen very often, but I go play basketball, and my knees say, I don't want to play today. 
Can I sit this one out? I'm hurting. Doesn't work that way, does it? My whole body has to get involved. In the same way, the Bible has given us a task and our, our whole body is involved. But I think churchianity is that too much church has become a spectator sport. We sit and we watch, but we don't participate. Secondly, I think churchianity means that church has become about me. When we have this attitude, we find faults more than we find compassion. We do not serve, but instead we seek to be served. There are signs that a church member has a symptom of churches about me, and, and he lists some in the book, but just rattles some off. He says, you know, things like, um, I don't like the seats I'm sitting in, or, or I wish they'd change the music style, or, or, or someone sat in my seat. Oh boy, that's a bad one. Or, or my pastor didn't visit my, my sister's mother-in-law's brother, even though I asked him to. The church voted and, and, and decorated in a way that's not my style and I'm infuriated and I'm not going to give anymore. You've made statements like that. You know what you have done? Is you have made church about you. And it's not about you. Biblical life is about serving and sacrificing for others. Biblical life is about giving and, and to the needs of others. Churchianity is about being served. Churchianity is about saying, okay, this is what I want. This is my desire for the church. This is what I think should be best. And that's not what it's about. It's about giving up your life for others. Churchianity is when we say church is a spectator sport, when it's about me. But thirdly, it's about focusing on its flaws. Yesterday I had an opportunity to perform a wedding in this room for uh, Tess and Chris, and uh, they are on their honeymoon now, and I'm sure if you remember that time in your life when you were in the early days of your marriage, neither of you could really seem to find any flaw in the other one. I mean, you knew it was there, but it really wasn't there, you know what I mean? It was like, yeah, I joke around about it, but then there comes a, a point in your marriage when those intense feelings of attraction no longer blind those problems. You've lived together for a while and you begin to notice that your spouse isn't actually perfect. They actually have many flaws. Not my spouse, by the way. I just want to clarify that. She is perfect. But her spouse has many flaws. This happens in every marriage. And when that happens in a marriage, you have one of two choices. Either you can see the best in your spouse and love them completely despite their imperfections, or what happens in many marriages is they begin to focus on the faults, they begin to complain, they begin to nag about shortcomings, they begin to put down, and sometimes it leads to more and more problems. Which one do you think is the better choice? But you know what? That same truth comes in the relationship of the church. Maybe you haven't figured this out, but we've talked about this during this series. Your church is far from perfect. Every single person in this room has flaws, and the one standing up here has, has many myself. And we're far from perfect. And, and, but yet again, uh, in the same thing as marriage, it's far more healthy if we pray and if we uh, uh, endure and if we're patient instead of being critical. 
Yet I think for far too many church members, church has become about focusing on its flaws. You know, imperfect churches are not a new thing. Imperfect churches have been around for a long time. And that's why Paul wrote so many letters. That's why Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. That's why Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica. That's why Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And on and on and on it goes because there was imperfect, imperfect churches. And Paul needed to say, this is, this is how we deal with that. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote, take some time to read through 1 Corinthians, you will see Paul addressed problem after problem after problem. Why? Because they weren't a perfect church. But he wasn't, uh, he wasn't doing that to say, oh, you're, you, you know, you're a horrible church. No, he was doing that to say, let's grow, let's change. In 1 Corinthians, they had, they had issues with cliques. They had, they had problems with carnal behavior. They had problems with church leaders who weren't dealing with sexual immorality. They had problems with worldliness, materialism. They had rebellion against the authority. They had a misunderstanding about spiritual gifts. They, they abused the Lord's Supper, which is we'll read from Corinthians because Paul was trying to address that. They, they abused their liberty. They were, they were dealing with uh, heresies about the resurrection. Oh, and Paul's dealing with all these issues. And what we come to the end and we realize is this, is there church was not perfect because no church is perfect but that's where the gospel kicks in i mean do you understand the gospel the the gospel is the story about god saving imperfect people he places us in a church and he pours out his grace to us and i don't know about you but i am so incredibly thankful that god's grace is is for me In Romans, it says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time, God died for the ungodly. Jesus Christ did not come down to earth and die for the perfect because there wasn't any. He died for the ungodly. In Romans 5, 8, it says, But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You and I are recipients of this amazing grace that we sing about in the song, Amazing Grace, and, and, and our response to be should to give grace to others, yet we don't, we don't do that. God came down to earth in the form of Jesus Christ and saved us through grace, and yet so often you are not gracious enough to be kind to that fellow church member. Why? Because we spend so much time dwelling on the flaws instead of being gracious, being kind. Because here's the thing we can be a very critical bunch, can't we? But you know what? We're an assembly of a bunch of messed up sinners. We really are. And it's not just the other people sitting in, in the seat, two seats down from you, in front of you, behind you. It's you. It's me. And biblical Christianity is extending grace. Churchianity is dwelling on flaws. Which one are we going to do? Church is, when it becomes churchianity, it's dwelling and focusing on the flaws. Fourthly, it's Churchianity is a church that has low expectations. I think in churches often we don't really expect real change. We don't even we don't expect real transformation. You know, if you've been if you've been saved for fifty years and, and you're still struggling with the same sins and, and you have not grown in that in, in your life in fifty years, there's a problem. But you know, a lot of times that's what we do. 
We, we don't grow because we, do, we don't expect it. We don't expect it as a church because we have such low expectations. And that's a church that practices churchianity. They just say, hey, it's been this way for years. It's going to continue to this base, be this way for years. And oh well. You know what? We should be growing. We should be changing. We should have high expectations. We should handle things uh, with God's power. But too often we handle things in our own power. And we attempt to fix the problems with our own strength. And the Holy Spirit might be mentioned. He might be talked about. But in truth, we don't pay attention to the Holy Spirit. A low expectation church doesn't allow people the opportunity to grow. A low expectation church does not encourage growth. A low expectation church does not uh, cause or expect people to serve. I've seen low expectation churches where the deacon is a title instead of a servant. And communication uh, becomes something that doesn't really happen much. A church that is dwelling in the area of churchianity has low expectations. As a church, we should have high expectations on ourselves, on each other, and not in a judgmental way, but in a gracious way, help each other to grow. Fifth, a church that is living in churchianity has cliquish membership. And Tom Rayner in the book talks about this area that I've seen affect churches in the past. And as far as I know, I'm not aware of this being an issue in our church, but maybe it is. It's where uh, members uh, come together and exclude others. Cliques can take many forms, and uh, common t- uh, some common clique is an informal power group in a church that dictates what, every, what happens, and, and everyone has to get their approval for anything to take place. And sometimes they can be informal, sometimes they can be formal, a deacon group that uh, does not function biblically. But as we, as a church, grow, we do not allow those things to take place, but we serve as one unit together. So here's the question. How do we handle churchianity? What do we do when we encounter churchianity in, in our church instead of biblical church membership? What do we do when, we, when, we, when the Holy Spirit convicts us personally of, of living that way instead of biblical Christianity? Well, we need to ask ourselves, what does God think of it? So I, want, I told you to turn to Isaiah, and this is where I'll spend... Uh, the remainder of the time. And I want to look at, just for a little while here, the solution to churchianity. How do we do that? And I'll read through the verses as we go through, but this, this passage in, in Isaiah chapter 1, and starting in verse 10, is, is Isaiah coming, and he's bringing his opening message to the people of Israel. And, and it's not an easy one, because the people of Israel had become very, very uh, corrupt in the way that they were doing everything. They had fallen into sin as a nation. And uh, if you notice here, that as we read through it, you'll see that they were continuing the religious ceremony, and yet God was very unimpressed with how they were doing it. They were motivated by love for themselves. They were motivated by tradition. They were motivated by uh, meeting their checklists, but they were not motivated because of a love for God. I want you to look at verse 14, first of all, and you'll notice something here that's interesting. I want you to point out, it says in verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feast my soul hates. 
They have become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. Can you see here the, the frustration in the words of God? And yet, you also see, you notice how God uses a little sarcasm here. Because what does He say to them? He says to them, uh, uh, He uses the term, your. What is He talking about here? If you look in that verse, He says, your new moons. There was, the Jews were, were taught, and it was a part of their tradition, that during the time of the new moon, they would do a celebration, they would do a feast, and they would, they were on, it was to honor and glorify God. And then it says, your appointed feasts, such as Passover, and, 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 and there are other feasts that would take place. And, and notice what He did there. He didn't say this. He didn't say, you have corrupted my feasts. He says, your feasts. Why? Because what God is saying to them is this. He's saying, Your, this worship is obviously all for you because it does nothing for me. And he begins to talk to them about their worship. And he's warning them about their worship. And here they were. They were going through the routine. They were going through the habits. And yet, they were so far from what God wanted them to do. And so I want to look at in just the next few moments the, in this warning from God, He gives us three steps that He wants to talk about. The first one we see is God's appeal. Look, if you will, at verse 10. He says in verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people, of Gomorrah. The Lord is commanding His people to listen. And for us today, if we're struggling with churchianity attitudes, then my command to you today is to listen. And His appeal went out here to, to all levels of people. And I want to stop and notice for a moment, who did He uh, what did he call them? He, he, he called them the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you understand the Bible, you know that Sodom and Gomorrah, this was many years before this was written, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed by God, wiped off the face of the earth because of their immorality, because of their wickedness, their debauchery. And God completely annihilated them. I mean, here he comes, and this is a huge condemnation upon their part. He's declaring them Sodom and Gomorrah. Were they involved in those wicked things? Not to the level of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were still worshiping God, and yet God was saying it's, it's, it's similar to that. And He's trying to get their appeal, and by doing that, He addresses all levels of society. If you notice, He says, starts off in, in verse 10, and He says, first of all, hear me, hear me, rulers of Sodom. He starts off with the rulers. He was trying to get the attention of the princes. He was trying to get the attention of the leaders. But then he continues on beyond that, and he says, uh, uh, and he addresses the people of Gomorrah, and to that he's saying the commoners, the regular ones. And so he's talking to everyone, from, from the princes to the paupers, from the, the pastor to the servant. He's saying, listen, are you listening? Are you paying attention? I think he used the, these cities because they represented the very epitome of sinfulness. He's saying you've fallen into sinfulness. And so God's appeal to them was this. Listen to what I have to say. And then he goes on. And the second thing I want to notice is God's anger. 
And we see the anger of God begin to unfold on the people through the words of the prophet. And he says, uh, and I don't have this in the notes that's in your bulletin, but you can add these. He gives us really three areas that he is angered about and that he's frustrated about. And the, the first one we see in verses 11 and 12, notice what he says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, say of the Lord? I have enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of your well fed beast. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. And notice what he says, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling on my courts? What he is saying there, first of all, is he's saying, he's saying, I'm not going to accept your meaningless sacrifices anymore. The Israelites were going on their business of coming to church, coming to the temple, offering their sacrifices, and God says to them, I'm sick and tired of your sacrifices because there's no repentance that's accompanying it. It's the same idea when God met with King Saul and he said to King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15, he said this, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. What God is saying to His people in this passage is this, Your sacrifices given from a disobedient heart are meaningless to me. Maybe you're here and you come week after week, but your heart is not in it. Maybe you're a teenager, maybe you're a kid, maybe you're an adult, and you come and you say, oh, I'm here, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Check it off. But you have a disobedient heart. God says, you know what? Your sacrifice is worthless to me. Sometimes we think that we're doing such a great thing because we appear in, in God's house. And he's saying, I want more than that. I want more than mere attendance. I want more than mere ritual. But man, how often do we do that? I know I do. Oh, I got to do this again. And God's saying, that's not what I want. He goes on and he adds to that in the next verse. Look at verse 13, if you will. He says, Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocation. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Notice what he says there. The second thing, first one is, he says, I will not accept your meaningless sacrifice. But the second one is, he says, I will not endure both sin and worship. He says there, I cannot accept your uh, iniquity and at the same time your worship. And yet so often we do that. The Israelites were the equivalent of today of you know, Sunday Christians. They lived a sinful life, and they did what they wanted, and they came to worship. And God says sinful life and worshipful life is impossible because it's contradictory. And sometimes I believe we carry into worship sin that we shouldn't carry into worship. What's on your mind right now? What are you dwelling on? Is there anger in your heart? Is there bitterness in your heart? Are you, are you thinking gossip in your heart? Maybe, maybe there's wrong thoughts. You know, how often do we do that? And here, uh, uh, we, God's saying, I, I cannot have your sin and your worship. 
It doesn't work that way. And I think many times the problem is, is we think God doesn't really know our hearts. Because if we did, Hofton would be really convicted. Remember what, remember what uh, Samuel, uh, what God was trying to address to Samuel in, in 1 Samuel when, he's, when he was choosing David, and he said this, the Lord does not see as man sees for what? Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God knows your heart. I don't. Your spouse doesn't. Your kids don't. Oh, they might see reflections of your heart. They might see outward manifestations of your heart but only God knows your heart. And that's what God cares about. They were so busy with these sacrifices, and God said, these sacrifices are useless to me. God said, I cannot have your iniquity and your sin. But thirdly, notice in verse 15, he said, I will not hear your prayers. Look at verse 15. He says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. In this verse, he says, when you spread out your hands, it was very common for the Jewish people as they would pray, they would spread out their hands and they'd look to God and they would pray, God, uh, help me or God, provide for me or God, do this. And God says, you can spread out your hands all you want, but I'm going to hide my eyes from you because you're not following me. And they were putting on this show, it was act. And so often I believe we do the same thing, and that's why James says this, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. And we do that so often. We go to God and we say, God, why aren't you hearing me? And God says, because you have sin in your heart. You have sin in your life. We need to remove that sin, and we so often, we're doing this churchianity stuff, we're not living for God. You may fool everyone else in this church with your fake worship, but God sees who you really are, and he's caught you red-handed. And as a believer, are you doing the right thing? We see in this passage, we see God's appeal to them to listen. We see God's anger because it was such a fake churchianity type of religion. And then finally, though, here's the awesome thing, is we see God's answer. God didn't stop there. God gives them an answer. And God, like a loving parent, doesn't leave His people without provision. God just doesn't drop His his children on the side of the road and move on. He offers a solution. And notice the solution. Look at verse 16. He says this, Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of the deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Please the widow's cause. He says here in this passage, the first step, he says, is wash yourselves. This is a symbolic uh, a picture of the idea of, of repentance. Turn from your sin and say, it's wrong and I'm not going to do it anymore. But so often we just want to hang on to our, 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 our sin and hold on to it. And God offers a washing a cleansing to all those who are willing to turn from their sin. And maybe you're here today and you you have sin in your life that you need to turn from immediately. And I don't know what it is, but you do. 
God offers that cleansing. And when, when that cleansing comes, then he says to us now, live a life that is full of repentance. And what does that life look like? What is a life of repentance? He tells us in this passage. Notice what he says starting in verse 17. First of all, uh, he says, learn to do good. I find that amazing phrase because you don't automatically do good. Do you understand that? You don't automatically do good. You know, I, I, I've had people before say, man, I just, I, I wish God would help me stop sinning. And God will. But you have to learn it through His Word and through prayer and through time. Learn to, to do good. You don't automatically do it. But you must be willing to learn. And so often I don't think we are. He tells us, he goes on and he says, seek justice. What does he mean by that in that passage where he says, seek justice? That means stand for what's right. Do we stand for what's right? In our world today, that's, you know what? That's hard. That's a hard thing to do to stand for what's right, but he tells us we need to do it. Not in a mean spirited way, but stand for what's right. The other side of that uh, is the next one. He says, rebuke the oppressor. The idea of rebuke the oppressor is to stand against what's wrong. Do we stand against those things that are not in accordance to Scripture? And do we say, this is wrong? Do we love the sinner, but do we rebuke their sin in the way that we're supposed to? He tells us there we're supposed to Uh, we're supposed to learn to do good, we're supposed to seek justice, we're supposed to rebuke the oppressor. And the next one, notice what he says, we're supposed to defend the fatherless. We're supposed to be there for those who do not have. As I said at the beginning of my message, this, this year has been about serving, and we talked about serving one another, we talked about serving the church, and, then, and the end of this series we'll get to uh, when I get back from Romania is, is serving the world, and, and a huge part of that is what he's saying in this passage over and over and over again. We see this in Scripture, that we have a responsibility to defend those that can't defend themselves. Whether that's the, the, the topic of, uh, of abortion, whether that's uh, uh, you know, uh, dealing with adoption, whether that's any other area, he's telling us we are to be the ones that come alongside. It shouldn't be the social programs around us. It should be us as a church coming alongside and saying, we're going to do what's right. We're going to defend the fatherless. And then he says there, plead for the widows. As I said in a message recently, this was a very common place. If a widow was to go to, to, to court, um, if she didn't have any family, oftentimes the judge would never rule in her favor. And they were told, you need to stand and you need to defend the widow's cause. And today, maybe it's not the same because our court system's different, but we are to be people who are taking care of those who've lost a spouse, taking care of those in need. This is what it looks like to live a life of repentance. This is what he says you should do if you're living this life that is free from this sin. Yet, we so often make it about our churchianity and that's it. But what happens, just in closing, when we do live this way? Notice, if you will, in your Bible, in Isaiah 1, verse 18. What happens when we live this way and not according to churchianity? He says in verse 18, Come now, let us reason together this was a this is a uh, the idea of that word is to come to a legal decision together let's do this the right way though your sins are like scarlet they shall become white 
as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God is not compromising on sin, but God is offering a pardon from the judgment for those who have turned from their sin. That does not mean that we will never do it again. But that means we look and we say, I reject my sin and I am going to move on. He's not denying the fact that they are sinful. sinful. He is saying, instead, I'm offering forgiveness from that sin. But then if you notice, as it continues on, he says in verse 19, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. God will bless you. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. If you refuse to come and you rebel against God, you will receive eternal judgment. This is for one who has not confessed of their sins. Maybe you're here today and you have never accepted the gospel. You've never accepted the the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. For Isaiah, that had not taken place yet, but for us it has. And if we accept Jesus, He will give us forgiveness. And maybe you're here today and you're a Christian and you have done that, but yet you've become like much of Israel, and that is you've been bogged down by churchianity. You're okay with being here. But there's no, there's no heart of compassion for people. There's no love for God. There's no standing for what's right. There's no learning to do good. You need to repent of that sin as well. And God is appealing to us, just in the same way He was appealing to Israel, to come in repentance to Him. And when we do that, we can rid ourselves of churchianity. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. Lord, what a convicting passage that your prophet Isaiah spoke to your people. Lord, even though we live thousands of years later, we know that it still is applicable to us today. The principles that, that you taught your people still apply to us today. Lord, your desire is not just that we're here. Your desire is that we have a relationship with you, that we reject our sin, that we plead for those around us that don't have those to protect them, that we learn to do good. And Lord, I pray that you help us to do that. Lord, as we enter into a time of communion in a few moments, maybe there's some who have never placed their faith in you and they do not understand the gift of salvation that Jesus Christ offers us. I pray that you will convict their sin and cause them to turn to you. We ask this in your name. Amen.